Uh, but today, let's, let's get into 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. Oh, verse 11. Ah. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that's Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were there serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favour with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honour your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honour me I will honour, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity 
that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to, the gr to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put in one of the priest's places, please put me, sorry, <clears throat> in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is God's word. Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word says that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we ask, Father, that you would give us a heart that is teachable. Uh, we pray that we would be open to your spirit convicting us and bringing this word to bear on, on our lives so that we can turn away from all the things that dishonor you, uh, that we might embrace Christ, our faithful priest, and that through him we would have lives that honor you. And we ask this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Do you know, one of the sad realities of uh, the church's existence in, a, in this fallen world is how frequently uh, scandals and corruption uh, seem to surface uh, in churches. Um, I mean, it's not like churches are unique in this. You always hear of scandals in um, politics, uh, businesses and, and workplaces, uh, and even sports clubs. But there is something that is uniquely shocking when it happens in the church. Because the church is supposed to be different. The church is supposed to be led and shaped by the very characteristics that we actually find in God himself. And so we should be especially shocked when we hear about abuse in a church or when we hear about corruption happening among supposedly God's own people. It should shock us. We should be absolutely horrified and see, that's exactly how we should feel when we read about what was happening in this passage. Uh, because this passage uh, this, this, it highlights the, the mess that God's people are in at this time in Israel. Because this passage takes us to the very heart of life, or the very heart of Israel, which was the worship center, which was at Shiloh at the time. Uh, this is where the tabernacle was permanently set up uh, ever since the days of Joshua. Uh, it's been there. And so this is the place, this is where the nation would look to for their leadership, for their spiritual leadership. The priests who served at Shiloh were the spiritual leaders of Israel. They were the ones who were commissioned to teach the people God's word. They were the ones who were to lead in worship they were the ones who were to represent the people before God in the sacrifices. And yet we see here that it was hardly the place where God was honoured. Instead, it was a place of corruption, 
a place of abuse, of scandal. And we see here what God thinks about that. What God thinks when the place that is supposed to honour his name becomes a place of abuse and exploitation. We hear what God thinks and what he does about it too. And so there are three parts in this passage. First, a, we see a picture of corruption. Then we have a word of confrontation. And then finally, there's the promise of salvation. So first, we have a picture of corruption. Now, in, in the last chapter in Samuel, we were told that uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were priests of the Lord at Shiloh. In this passage, we get to know them a little bit better. And we're told right from the outset in verse 12 that they are worthless men. The last time that phrase was used in the Bible was in Judges chapter 19 and 20. And it was used to describe the men of Gibeah who committed such a horrendous crime against a woman that it's almost too shocking to mention in a setting like this. The things that they did... Why? Because they were worthless men. And that's the description that is now used for Hophni and Phinehas, men who were meant to be leading the people in worship, the priests, worthless men. Verse 12 adds that they did not know the Lord. Now, that can't mean that they didn't know about God. Of course, they knew about God. They were priests after all, but they didn't know him. That is, they didn't have a relationship with him. They were unbelievers serving at the very heart of religious life in Israel. Uh, that phrase, they did not know the Lord, that's actually the same phrase that Pharaoh used to describe himself when he refused to listen to God's word through Moses. He said, who, why should I listen? I don't know the Lord. That's the phrase used to describe Hophni and Phinehas, which shows us that it's not about ignorance. It's rather about defiance. They, they knew the Lord, they knew about him, but they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They didn't want to let God have any influence in their lives. It was defiance. And sadly, that is actually something that can exist in the church. Uh, you or I could be someone who attends uh, services, who goes through all of the motions of a Sunday morning service, uh, serves in different ways, and yet we could do all of that without knowing the Lord. <clears throat> you know, we could be uh, a part of, of the church and yet still living in defiance of God, still having this heart that says, no one tells me how to live my life. Or there could be a part of your life, a certain part where Secretly in your heart, you say, God has no right to enter that part. He has no right to tell me what to do about that. See, that's, that's a defiant heart. That's what we see in Hophni and Phinehas. And see, that, that, that defiance, it's especially a disaster when it's the leaders of God's people. Because that corruption, that, that defiance, it has a way of infecting the whole, of it has a way of destroying those under their care. And that's what we see in Hophni and Phinehas. 
the way they carried out their priestly service, they were characterized by abuse, by exploitation. They used the people of God rather than serving others, they served themselves. They used people to serve themselves. And there's two examples of that in here. Uh, so in verses 13 to um, 17, <clears throat> we've got the example of the way they treated uh, the sacrifices. So a, a priest's main role was to, um, you know, the people would bring an offering to the Lord, like, you know, God's people, we, we sin. And so how do we deal with that? Well, before Jesus, the true sacrifice came, they had the animals that they would offer as sacrifices. And uh, in God's law, in Leviticus 7 and Deuteronomy 18, it set out that the priests were entitled to particular portions of these offerings. You know, after all, they're killing a lamb. And uh, so some of that the priests were entitled to have to eat. That's how God looked after them. I mean, they didn't have land of their own. They couldn't farm. They couldn't earn a living. So God looked after them by providing these, these offerings. And yet what we see with Hophni and Phinehas is that rather than listening to God's word and only taking the portions that God had said they were to take, they would just take whatever they liked. And, uh, you know, they would even demand the best cuts of meat. They would get violent if anyone said anything. Like if someone said, oh, hang on a minute, doesn't the law say you're only supposed to have these bits? And they, no, they would get violent. They would take it by force if anyone stood up to them because they cared nothing for the Lord. But God certainly cared. And that's why verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So that was one example of their corruption. Another example, it's mentioned down in verse 22, where uh, not only were they using sacrifices to serve themselves, but they were actually using the women who served there. Uh, Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, mentions that uh, women helped out in um, looking after the, the tabernacle. And yet Hophni and Phinehas abused them, used them like objects for their own gratification. And so they turned the place of God's holiness into a place of immorality, treating people like objects to exploit. And so it was completely corrupt. It was downright evil. Could you imagine just how shocking that would have been to know that that was going on in the house of the Lord? It is absolutely shocking. And in many ways, that actually gives us an insight into why the nation of Israel was in such a mess at that time. Remember the last chapters of Judges where everything is just out of control. That's because this is the state of the leadership at that time. Eli was actually the judge of Israel at this time. And look, if, if the leaders care nothing for God's holiness, then of course no one else is going to worry about it. If the leaders treat worship with such contempt, then it's no wonder that the rest of the nation becomes cynical about everything. No wonder they become careless about God's holiness. And this is why the Bible does put such an emphasis on that what, what is to characterize leaders in, among God's people is, of course, godliness. 
that that's the main qualification. You know, so what if you've got skills in leadership? That does not matter if you do not have the character for the role. And what is the character? It's defined by God's character. Holiness, godliness, righteousness, truth. That's why Paul, for example, told Timothy that he has to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. See, God's standard for, for his people is holiness. Leaders are to lead the way in that. They must set the example. And sadly, we do hear that sometimes churches are led by the likes of the Hophneys and Phineases, where they're not in it to serve the people of God, but rather to serve themselves. And uh, do you know, they don't represent what God is about, people like that. They don't represent what the church is about. Instead, do you know what they actually are? They're tools of the devil. And the reason I say that is because when verse 12 says that Hophni and Phinehas were worthless men, the Hebrew word is the word Belial. Have you heard that word Belial before? It's in the New Testament. By the time the New Testament was written, the word Belial came to be used as a name for the devil. And so it literally says that Hophni and Phinehas were sons of Belial. That's who they were unknowingly serving, destroying God's honour in the very place where his name was to be honoured as holy. Now Jesus did say, beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How will you know who they are? You will recognise them by their fruit. See, that's the corruption. <clears throat> And that's why, second, we see a confrontation. The, co the corruption is confronted. God won't let's let it go on. He confronts them. But before he does, first of all, Eli has a go. Eli attempts to confront his sons in verses 22 to 26. And uh, it says in verse 22 that Eli, um, he kept hearing what all his sons were doing to all Israel. And uh, there is a little bit of ambiguity to that because um, it says he was hearing about it, which kind of sounds like he wasn't aware until some reports were coming in. Uh, and it does say at the start of that verse that he was very old. So, you know, you could sort of understand maybe he's not out and about as much anymore. Perhaps he was a little bit out of touch what was happening. And uh, so maybe he didn't know. But then again, given the perversity of that corruption, it's pretty hard to imagine that Eli had no idea. It's more likely that he pretended not to know, that he kept turning a blind eye to it until the nation started to talk, until the nation started to complain, and then all of a sudden he couldn't just keep ignoring it. And so he confronts his sons, he tells them how bad it is. Uh, he says to them in verse 24, he gives this warning, he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So he seems to be referring to the way that his sons were treating the sacrifices. The sacrifices for, were, the, were the means 
of finding forgiveness from God. But if they're treating the offerings like they were, then where else would they find forgiveness for their actions? But there is a major flaw here in the way Eli rebukes his sons because Eli never gets to the real issue. He, he seems to be more concerned about his boys getting into trouble with God than he actually is about the offence that they have caused to God. Or to put it another way, <clears throat> he's more worried about, their, about his son's reputation and about his son's safety than he is about God's holiness. And so Eli, he actually doesn't call them to repentance. He just tells them, you know, you've got to be careful. Watch out for the consequences of your actions. He doesn't call them to true repentance because true repentance, it doesn't come from being scared of the consequences of your sin. True repentance comes from realizing how offensive your sin is to God and actually hating the sin itself. That's how true repentance comes. But Eli never mentions that. He's more worried about his son's honor than he is about God's honor. And uh, do, do you, did you realize that even if Eli did call them to true repentance, it wouldn't have made any difference because it's too late. Did you notice verse 25 where it says they would not listen to the voice of their father? And then it gives the reason for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, what does that mean? It means that at some point, Hophni and Phinehas had crossed the line. It means that at some point, in all of their defiance of God, they crossed a line where there was no hope of return, no hope of repentance, that God had determined that that's it, that they're gone. And we actually see this idea mentioned a lot in the Bible where when someone's defiance of God is so persistent and they continually ignore God's call to repent, that there comes a point when it's all too late, when that hope of repentance is taken away and God essentially says, if that's what you want, fine, have it your way. <clears throat> now, this is what the Bible calls um, the hardening of our heart. Uh, do you know, this is, this is actually how God's judgment works out in the world. Now, I think many people think about God's judgment like this. Now, you do something really bad, God gets upset, and so he sends a lightning bolt to strike you dead. That's how most people think about God's judgment. But what we actually see in the Bible is God's judgment more often works in a, in a much different way. Uh, God's judgment works by simply leaving you alone in your sin, letting you have it the way you want, just leaving you and leaving you until that's it, leaving you forever in your sin. That's how his judgment works out. Uh, and that's what the Bible means by hardening of our heart. It means that when God leaves you in that state, you become so hard that you become impenetrable to the sweet offer of the gospel. You just keep, you can't anymore embrace it. 
Now, so you wonder how many people who indulge their secret sins and are all the time thinking to themselves, ha, look at this, I'm getting away with it. God mustn't be real because if he was real, he'd come and strike me down, but he's not. So everything must be okay. See how wrong such a person is. That person does not realize they are already under the judgment of God. God has given them over to their sin. And unless, unless he offers mercy, there is no hope for such a person. They're already under God's judgment. See, Romans 1 says God's wrath, it is being revealed right now in the world. How? By God giving people up to their lusts, giving people up to their passions, by giving people up to a debased mind. It's in Romans 1, in verse 24, 26, 28. And so we have here, this is a warning for us. The warning is if you keep putting off repentance, you know, if you keep suppressing God's call to turn from your sin and turn back to him, if you keep doing that, you may have already crossed a line. There may be no hope of return. That's how scary this is. This is a warning. We must never harbor sin, hang on to sin. We must repent, turn away from it. Because there does come a point where it says that it was the Lord's will to put them to death. <clears throat> well, Eli, he, he tried to confront his sons, and that was a major flop. Uh, he, he had it all wrong, but his sons were too far gone anyway. And uh, so what happens? God intervenes. God confronts. And God sends an unnamed prophet to speak a word of judgment, not on Eli's sons, but on Eli's whole house. And uh, we see that from um, verse 27, right to the end of the chapter. And it's a long speech. And what this speech reveals is it turns out that Eli all along knew what was going on. He really did. Uh, because the heart of it is in verse 29. This is the heart of the, the charge, uh, where the, the unnamed prophet says, on God's behalf, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honour your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel? And so notice there how Eli is implicated in the crime. His sons were the ones who were stealing the choicest parts, but who, who were fattening themselves on that? God includes Eli in that. You yourselves are doing this. And uh, so it sounds like, you know, Eli, he might not have been in favor of the way his sons were getting the choicest parts, but he was happy enough to eat them when they were brought home. And uh, it is interesting that uh, when you read into chapter 4, when Eli eventually does die, uh, it says that he falls off his chair and, and breaks his neck. And it does mention at the end of that, chapter 4, verse 18, that he was old and heavy. And, you know, maybe we're reading a bit too much into it, but it does indicate that why was he a heavy man? Because he was fattening himself on the bits of the offering that were actually supposed to be for God. So Eli was in, in on it. But the main reason he's confronted is actually because he failed to restrain his sons. The main reason. 
was because he did nothing about it. Uh, he, well, God says he honoured his sons more than he honoured the Lord. In other words, his son's reputation was more important to him than God's reputation. You know, he, he, he'd happily just let God's name be dragged through the mud in all of Israel rather than making the effort to restrain his sons. And uh, you can't help reading that without kind of, you know, as a parent, hearing the warning, hang on a minute, what do I need to learn from this? Because as a parent, it is very easy to let things slide. It's easy to overlook when we see in our children a defiance, you know, a defiance in behavior or in their attitude of, of something that dishonors the Lord. It's easy to let that slide, think, oh, it's too hard to confront. I don't want to upset them. I don't want them to not like me. Uh, too busy. And so we end up tolerating things that dishonor the Lord. That's what Eli was doing. And God calls him to account. Can you feel the warning in that as a parent? So Eli, he might not have done all the things that his sons were doing, but he tolerated it. He did nothing about it. And as a father, that's bad enough. But at the same time, Eli was the judge of Israel. And so for him to tolerate this sort of behavior in the house of God... That was just as corrupt as the very things his sons were doing to the sacrifices and to the women. And so he might not have had the power to change their behaviour, but he did have the power to kick them out of the priesthood. But he didn't do it. Why? Because he was more worried about his son's reputation than he was God's. That's why he's judged. That's why he's condemned. Because he, re he refused to remove his sons from office. And so because of that, God's going to remove them all. Remove the whole clan of Eli from this role. Eli tolerated corruption, but God will not. And the heart of the reason why, in it's in verse 30, where God says, Those who honour me I will honour, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, this is a hard-hitting passage, isn't it? And when we talk about God's holiness, it's always a hard-hitting passage because there's something about our hearts that it always exposes. And uh, it, it shows us that corruption is not just the stuff you read in headlines. Corruption is actually about whether we honour the Lord or not. That's the real issue. And you can see that at this time, here were the leaders of Israel, the ones who were supposed to be uh, representing the people before God and God before the people. They were corrupt. So as a result, the whole nation suffered. Can you imagine being an Israelite at that time, walking along, wondering to yourself, you know, what's the point of even going to the temple? I can't even get close to God because the very ones who are supposed to mediate that are corrupt. Can you imagine how frustrating that must have been? What did the people need? The people needed a faithful priest, someone who would offer pure sacrifices, someone who would bring the people into fellowship with God and promote God's honour in the nation. They needed a faithful priest. And what we see in this, this unnamed prophet's speech is that right at the end, 
God promises just that. He promises to raise up a faithful priest. So have a look at verse 35, where God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Okay, who is the faithful priest that God is raising up? Who is it? It's Samuel. Did you notice in the reading that there are all these references to um, Samuel throughout the passage? So the very first, um, if we go back and look at verse 11, Alex, uh, notice at the start it says that uh, the boy, that Samuel, was ministering before the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And you keep getting those little statements scattered throughout the passage. They're actually all laid in there like, a, um, like layers in a sandwich. Uh, actually, if you put that slide up, I've got a, there's an outline of the passage. So notice Samuel serving and then problems with Eli. It goes like that right through the passage. Why? Because it's, it's showing us that behind the story of the corruption in Israel, there's another story taking place. The story of God raising up a faithful priest who will honour him, who will restore God's honour to the nation. That's the story behind the story. And uh, it's written like this, kind of to show how, what it would have felt like in experience. Because the main story is the problems with Eli's house. That's what Israel would have noticed at the time. That was the word on the street. That's what everyone was complaining about. And yet in the background, what's going on? Little Samuel serving there in the temple, wearing his little linen ephod, the priest's garment. Uh, his mum turning up once a year with a new robe. There he is, serving the Lord in the background. No one would have noticed little Samuel. Right there in all the darkness of this corruption is this little ray of light. And uh, the most amazing verse in this passage, I think, is verse 26. Because you've got Samuel growing up right in the middle of all this corruption. You know, the examples that he has set before him are horrendous. And yet verse 26 says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favour with the Lord and also with, with man. Uh, there was a Sunday school curriculum that I read once that um, took that verse and said to the kids, See children, you might go to school and everyone else is wanting you to, to get involved in you know, swearing and doing all these things. You can be like Samuel. <laughs> you can remain faithful to God in the midst of all of that. Uh, but in this passage, see, that's going on in the background. No one would have noticed that. The people needed a faithful priest. God was raising one up right under their very noses. That's often how God works. <clears throat> and yet there is a sense in which Samuel is actually not the real fulfillment of the promise. Because Samuel, he was kind of like a priest. You know, Psalm 99 that we read at the start mentions that he... He was a priest with Moses and Aaron. Uh, but there's a sense in which Samuel wasn't the priest of Israel because Samuel's real role, as we'll see next week, was a prophet. And the prophet's role in Israel was to keep the king in line. God's about to provide the nation with a king, so they first need a prophet who will um, teach the king uh, how to to rule. 
And so Samuel, he wasn't, he certainly didn't fulfill verse 35 because it says, God says, I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Uh, what happened after Samuel? There's no, there's no house of Samuel because Samuel's sons didn't take on the priesthood. They didn't turn out to be very good guys, actually. Uh, we'll look at that later, but... So Samuel wasn't the, the ultimate faithful priest that God's people need. No, it wasn't until a thousand years later that we see another boy growing up who's described in almost exactly the same way as Samuel. Uh, Luke 2.52 says about Jesus that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. See, there's the faithful priest that God's people need. And Jesus, he really is the faithful priest for God's people. See, unlike Eli, Jesus was, is passionate for his father's honour. Remember when Jesus found corruption in the house of God, in the temple? What did he do? Did he turn a blind eye to it like Eli and hope it all just goes away? No, he made a whip and he went in there and he drove it all out because he was passionate for his father's honour. How could they turn the house of prayer into a den of thieves, he said. See, Jesus is the faithful priest. Hebrews 7.26 says, We have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. See, he is the faithful priest. And Jesus is the faithful priest who, unlike Eli's sons, does not take, he does not exploit, he does not abuse his people, he does not use his people for himself, but rather he gives himself for his people. That's the beauty of Jesus, the priest who offers himself as the sacrifice for our sin, to take our sin away forever so that we never have to offer another sacrifice. Jesus is the one sacrifice, removes our sin as far as east is from west forever. See, he's the king, he's the priest who gives, who gives himself. And therefore, he's the faithful priest that we need. Because this passage, as I said before, it shows us that corruption is not just the stuff you read in the headlines and the news. Corruption is wherever the Lord is not honoured in our lives. Wherever we, we treat God as small. Wherever we tolerate sin. Wherever we act in selfish ways. That's what corruption is. And you know as well as I do that that's in, that's in all of our hearts. And so what do we need? We need a faithful priest who can take that away. And Jesus is that priest. You know, Eli asked his sons, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Well, it turns out we have someone. Because Hebrews 7.25 says about Jesus, he is able to save completely those who draw, to God, who, who draw near to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, the faithful priest the one who cleanses us of the corruption of our heart so that we can be changed and live for God's honour. And so the message from this passage is don't harden your heart to Jesus. Don't ignore the call to come to him and be free, be cleansed.
take hold of Jesus, the faithful priest. And having him, keep your eyes on him. Because Hebrews says when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can run the race set before us. We can actually live the lives that honour the Lord. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that when we look at this passage and see the corruption in the very ones who are supposed to mediate between the people and you, we see that that meant that they couldn't experience the joy of knowing you, of fellowshipping with you. But we thank you that we have a faithful priest who brings us into your presence and who, who promotes your honour in our lives. We thank you for that Jesus has dealt with the corruption in our own hearts so that we can draw near to you. And Father, we pray that we will take hold of everything that this passage has revealed to us. Uh, for us as parents, help us to be passionate for your honour and to be able to speak the truth in love to our children. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would also take to heart the call to repentance, that we wouldn't let sin remain unchecked in us, but that we would always be turning away from it, turning back to you, knowing that through Christ there is forgiveness and restoration so that we might walk in freedom. We pray, Heavenly Father, for us as a church that we would honour you in the way that we conduct ourselves. Uh, be with uh, the leaders especially, Father. Uh, may you enable us to live godly lives, to set that example and to encourage everyone uh, in holiness uh, that we would all seek the Lord uh, to that end. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.